that we find in Acts in the New Testament. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 19, I want to look at a testimony we're given there, verses 23 through 41. The passage I want to study today is different in that we don't have a sermon or teaching from Paul, but another person's testimony of what Paul's words and ministry were doing in the people of that region, their rebellion towards it, especially what they were doing to expose idols of the culture and people's lives. In Exodus 23 through 6, we read God's clear command that we are to worship or hold, we are not to worship or hold anything higher than God. Listen, Exodus 23 through 6, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I pray that this unique Look at Acts 19 this morning is helpful for each of you as you consider the important practice of exposing idols in your own life so that the Lord alone is who you live for and worship. Look with me at our text today, Acts chapter 19, 23 through 41. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring 
charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Church, I want to highlight three important things this morning. Number one, how do we discern idols? Number two, how do we expose idols? And number three, what is the remedy for our our idolatry? As we look to the ministry of Paul, we see time and time again that he was willing to take on the idols of people's hearts as a way to help them see their sin and their need for the gospel. I believe it is essential that you and I learn to better discern the idols in our own lives and in those around us, so that we too can expose them and replace them with gospel truth that sets us free. Freedom from our idols is an essential reality for the true Christian, for we cannot truly worship God alone and above all else if we are practicing idolatry in other areas of our life. To claim to belong to, to be satisfied in Christ, but then be submitted to or to look to be satisfied in the idols of our heart or of our society is to not be free at all and to break the commandment of our Lord. This is why exposing and replacing idols is an essential work of the gospel and the new covenant church and Christian. For far too many modern day people claim saving trust in Jesus alone, but then do not really change the way they go about living. They stay enslaved to their idols instead of being bound to Christ alone. This simply cannot be. For we saw this in my last sermon in 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Clearly, Having no idolatry in our lives is a commandment of our God and therefore one that we must take most seriously and honor His command in the power that Christ alone gives us. To set up our passage and give you a little context, Paul, we see in Acts 14, was preaching in Lystra and then in Acts 16, he's preaching in Philippi and then in Acts 17, he's preaching in Athens. And in these sermons, as mentioned in the account that Demetrius gives in our passage today, he constantly is moving to the priority of discerning and exposing the idols of that culture, those people that surrounded him. For example, in Acts 17, 16, Now when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. See with me, Paul's priority and attention to discern the idols around him. And so I just want to ask us, what is your priority? How attentive are you to discerning the idols of today's culture, of your own family, of the life of those in your household or those who you do life with, and in your own life? As Paul moved about to bring the life-changing gospel to the Greeks, you see him often go to the epicenter of those very communities, not just because that's where the people gathered, but so that he could literally point to the idols of those societies that cast their shadows over the market square. Realize, church, every setting, every setting, 
that is not based on the glory and majesty of God is going to be based on something that has been put in God's place. In this, we must understand that every community, every family, every group, every gang, every team, every neighborhood, every city, every class, every country is looking for something to save it, to rescue it, to give it identity and purpose. This is the root of every form of idolatry. When someone says idol worship or idolatry, what most people commonly think of is a a figure carved of stone or wood that one might be bowing down to, prostrate on the ground, going through some religious routine of devotion or worship. But we must not think of idolatry only in this kind of tribal way. No, we must be discerning the magnitude and the plethora of where idolatry shows up in our modern lives. One author warned it this way, We have, in effect, distanced ourselves from the whole idea of idolatry by pushing it out to the extreme culture and psychological margins of life. In other words, idolatry is not a struggle for me or my family. That's, that's for really unique people who are way out there, part of different lands or cultures. But many in this don't see the normality of idolatry in our modern culture. Let me remind you, as we look to the Word of Truth Catechism, question 34, what is the sin of idolatry? Really take this in this morning. Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. The way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 1 is instead of turning Godward, we turn from God to something we put in His place. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give as God or give thanks to Him. In the sinful fall of mankind, mankind ceased to see God as fundamental, as essential for the existence and fulfillment of our lives, for what is proper to honor and worship Him. The problem with this is that when we no longer seek Him to be those things for us, what we end up doing Or what we end up with is an active vacuum where we'll seek anything else to fulfill that in our lives. In sin, we do not only turn away from God, we hunt to find something to put in His place. Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then again in Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. We must understand because we are all wired by God for worship, we will worship something. This is His design on our life. When we turn from God in sin, we will find a substitute or substitutes on which we will heap our praise, our devotion, our identity, our purpose. In this we have our idols. When we do this, we look to something else to give us our identity, our meaning, our significance, our purpose, our security, and our joy. And so don't push off what is coming to mind. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring it into view. Those things that might be that for you. Understand, G.K. Chesterton said it well, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. 
So your idols likely then are not carved blocks of wood or shiny metal formed stones, but instead they're people in your lives. Precious people. They're places that you love and adore. They're a house or a car. Maybe a team. Images, ideas, pleasures, political parties, and on and on. Notice that it is not an idol, it's idols, plural. In these things we put our hope, we put our trust. In them we try to find our identity, our personal significance, our sense of security, our purpose for living, our source of happiness and joy. When we begin to understand this, we begin to really understand what God is saying when He said, do not have any other gods before me. He's essentially saying, don't make anything more necessary or more fundamental or valuable in your life than me. Keep me as your hope, your identity, your significance, your purpose, your security. Love me. Trust me, he says. Enjoy me. Not any of the counterfeits you would put in my place. Martin Luther has said it this way, every breaking of the commandments at its core is a breaking of the first commandment. Here's, here's why breaking any commandment is really a breaking of the first, which is that we are to, to love God first and above all else. For example, why do we lie? Because I want the approval or the thing the lie gets me to make me happy or to fulfill me. In doing that, I'm replacing God. I'm valuing that, so I'll lie for it. Why do I steal? Because I think I need that thing. And so I'll justify taking it wrongly, thereby replacing God. Why do I covet or envy? Because if I would have that, I'd be happy. I'd finally be satisfied. And that's replacing God. Why do I disobey clear commands of God in Scripture? Because I think the thing that I'm pursuing is better. It will be of greater satisfaction in my life. So I will disobey Him and pursue it. This brings to light a key thing to understand. An idol in its essence is not necessarily something evil or wicked. Many times, for many of us, it is something that is very good. It is a good gift. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sensual in, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Here we see this emphasis on covetousness, on, on evil desires. But again, when we see that word evil, we think wicked. But the word there, the Greek word, as I've taught you many times before, is the word epithumia. The word epithumia is both an evil desire and or it can be an over-desire or an excessive desire that makes it evil. An excessive desire, an over-desire for a good thing. It's desiring something evil, or it's an over- or misplaced desire for something that is good. John Calvin, late great reformer, says it well. The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Let me say that again. The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Often the object of the desire is good. The evil lies in the lordship of it over our lives. So that means our kids, our career, and many other good things can become great idols in our lives. 
To properly, therefore, discern the idols in our life, we must see that our idols can be very good things, things that we've inflated to be my hope, my identity, my significance, my purpose, my security, instead of God alone. So back to the context that Paul's in. In this region of the world are, are many Greek gods, all the Greek gods and goddesses that mankind came up with. And we can be quick to think, well, that doesn't relate to me. I don't have statues of Greek gods or gods to worship that my community is telling me. I don't have shrines, places of worship like that. But again, this is where we must be better at discerning idols. Let me show you. Your beauty can be a good gift of God. But when you raise it up in your mind or heart or life as an ultimate thing, that you live for, that you make fundamental for your identity, for your value, you are essentially worshiping Aphrodite. There's, there's idol worship in that over affection. Human reasoning and knowledge is a good thing, but when science and knowledge becomes fundamental to your identity and your value, you're essentially worshiping Athena. Money can be helpful, a helpful thing to allow us to eat and be comfortable and live. But when it becomes so fundamental to your identity and your purpose and your value and your joy, you're essentially worshiping Artemis. Enjoying the good gifts of God that he intends to be enjoyed rightly and in moderation is a wonderful blessing. But when wine turns to drunkenness or food turns to gluttony, or sexual intimacy is pursued outside of marriage, we're essentially worshiping Dionysus. See with me that we don't need statues and temples to identify that we have idol worship in our life. Likely, no one in here has a statue of Athena in their home that they bow down to at night. But the point is this, you don't need a physical idol to practice idolatry. You just need to find your hope, your identity, your significance, your purpose, your security, and anything other than in God, your Creator, to practice idolatry. To help us see that this is not just physical stuff, think about the cultural identity that many are caught up here in America. Again, I want to help you to continue to see the layers especially we could do this by doing a quick exercise to look to the big cities in America and the uniqueness that comes with them. For example, in Boston, what matters most in that community and culture is what you know. Right? Boston is this place where our top thinkers in our country are educated at MIT and these high, high schools of thought and thinking, education. And so that whole culture is just steeped in what do you know. In New York, what matters is how much do you make, right? This financial hub and center of, of, of our country and uh, the World Trade Center and the stock exchange and the affluence of that city worldwide is an epicenter in our country for money. In San Francisco, what matters most is how abstract is your art. That's what's valued. That's what's held up as most important. Artistic expression, living outside the boundaries of normal is celebrated in philadelphia what matters most is who is your family lineage and, and family culture and identity is everything in la what matters most is who do you know who are you dining with who 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 are your connections 
The, the world's most famous people live in L.A. It's about who you know. And in this, we're helped to begin to slow down and really ask ourselves, what are the idols of my family, of my culture, of my city? What are the non-negotiables, the things that we do religiously? The things that, if I'm honest, come really before anything else. We hold these things up and nothing bends them. We must discern our idols. Because we are so used to these things as being normal that we've become really numb to their presence and our practice. It's all around. It essentially dictates our days and our priorities until we discern and expose them or until they expose us. Christian, this can't be us. We have to join Paul and what we see him doing throughout his work of expanding the gospel to discern idols in the life and culture. So, I ask you again, do you see the idols in your life? Maybe in your vocation, maybe in your family or your relationships, in your home, in your social groups. And many times those things are tied to something, especially as of late, you really love, that you're really into. It's only after we discern the idols in our life can we then begin to expose them for what they are. And before we dive into that, let me say most clearly, it's not enough to just discern your idols. Not if you truly live for God. No, you must then expose them if you're going to replace them. So notice Paul's words to the people that Demetrius quotes in his little testimony here to his other profiteers, the shadow of of the temple that they're in. He brings up Paul's teaching that gods made with hands are not gods. And when that was said, did you notice as I read the text, the whole town went into a frenzy. It was chaos. Did you notice that it said some people who gathered and were going nuts didn't even know why they were there? Why? Because he's messing. Why is it such chaos? Because he's messing in those words with that exposure, messing with the central thing that their lives are built on in that day and culture. And this will happen to our lives and to those around us when we expose idols. They will go into a frenzy. Why? Because all of a sudden they feel very exposed. Why? Because you're so tied to that thing, that identity, that practice, that ideal that you've worked so hard to have and and, and to manufacture, and then it's upset. Practically consider with me some of these that are big. Things that must be exposed if they're idols in our lives. The first is money. That's the main example we have in the passage we're looking at. The Greek goddess Artemis In that culture, the belief was that Artemis was the goddess of the hunt and of fertility. Over the years, she essentially became the goddess of business, successful business. Because she was the goddess of fertility, that meant that they looked to her to be the one who would grow their crops and give them abundance in their ventures. Acts 19.35, when the town clerk acquired the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there that does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? What is he talking about there? Well, a meteorite 
fell to the earth, and they claimed that it looked like the statue of Artemis. So this was a sign. They passed the word to the world, and so people traveled from all over to come see it. In that day, it became this huge attraction, and so they wanted to capitalize on it. So they built the Temple of Artemis. It was so massive, so grand. It literally is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so prominent. And people wanted to come and see it. And it truly became the Disneyland of the day. And just like Disneyland, where all the money is made is in 1,800 trinkets. Right? All the things. All the way down to an ice cream bar, to a t-shirt, to a figurine, to a balloon that has Mickey Mouse's face on it. They were figuring out ways to make money in the shadow of this. We're centered around Artemis. So the merchants sold trinkets of Artemis. That's what Demetrius did. Did you notice a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis? As he went on to say, business was good. The profits the people were making was really good. This became so important for that culture that they would sacrifice this to this Greek goddess with hopes that she would keep the money flowing. And, and they did this. And they believed that she wasn't pleased that business would go down. So how horrible that you're, you're literally sacrificing all that you have to, to try to please this, this false god. Putting all your faith, all your trust in it. But we have to see, and this is where discerning and exposing has to go to work for us. We do this too. I grew up in a similar Ephesus called Orange County. It was, and still is today, a major business hub of the world. It is a community of great wealth. One of our local high schools in Irvine advertised in Asia to draw wealthy Asian businessmen and their families, saying they could help train their next generations to be successful Western profiteers. And they came in droves from around the world. In the culture of affluence I grew up in, there was a ton of child sacrifice. And you're thinking, well, wow, that sounds really dark. Yeah, I thought you said you live in Irvine. Irvine Wasn't Irvine deemed the safest city to live in America many years? Yeah, it was, still is. Policemen in Irvine are bored. <laughs> so what do I mean by a ton of child sacrifice? What I mean is both mother and father and majority of our families growing up from birth would hand their children over for the next 18 years to care workers and schools, not because they had to, because they wanted a bigger ring on their finger, because they wanted to drive a more expensive automobile and travel to the ends of the earth. The business demand in Orange County was fierce, and to keep up, you had to pay a high price. I had many friends who grew up in families that looked nothing like mine. My, my family was constantly poor in Irvine. My dad had a good income as a firefighter, but they were committed to have my mom be at home. And therefore, we drove old cars. And I didn't get a new car at 16. And all of these things that were very abnormal for Matt, Michelle, and I growing up there. But I watched my friends. I watched my best friends. Most of them did not have a mom and dad at home. Most of those marriages were plagued by divorce because of just the unhealth of all that the pursuit meant. They had sweet toys. My friends all wore brand new Jordans. I never had a pair of brand new Jordans. They went on fancy vacations, but they didn't have parents who were present. 
and prioritize to raise them in the good ways that God calls us to. Let me ask you this morning, what are you sacrificing in the name of more money for a better life for your family? What lie have you told yourself that you need to be fulfilling to do this? Church, this has to be exposed. What about another idol that's common is romance or a love relationship? This is another way that we often don't properly discern and expose. When we look to another person for our worth, for our identity, for our comfort, the idol has found its place in our heart. When this is the case, we'll compromise moral boundaries and God-given priorities to keep that kind of relationship going. We'll turn away from godly counsel and do just about anything to justify to have it. I see it all the time in over two decades of pastoral ministry. How sad it is to see people who claim to be devoted and sold out to Christ sell out to fast-track a relationship or to stay in one that is full of true compromise before the Lord. How do you know whether your relationship is healthy or is Epaphrodite? Well, it's grown to a place of worship. Maybe a place where you don't have boundaries. You're doing things you once thought you would never do. You've moved to a place where this relationship has become an idol of your heart. It's consuming you. It's all you can think about. And you're beginning to believe that it is the very thing you need to make your life worth anything. This is idolatry. And society is screaming at you that this is the way forward. They are, they are spending billions of dollars to teach you through TVs and movies that this romantic pursuit where you throw everything to the wind to pursue it is worth it. One of the most toxic relationships in a movie where, the, where this couple that had no business pursuing each other finally gets to this place where they say to each other, you complete me. And it continues to be a wreck. We have to be aware of identifying these things and repent of it where they're present. Family. Family is a big one. What about, what about that? What about our kids? The thought of many good intending parents is my kids are happy and grow up to be successful. That's all that matters. And I would say one of the biggest modern day idols in our lives is our kids. We make them everything. They're the ones we have on the mantle. They're the shiny objects we praise and gloat about. They're the ones that if we lost them or messed up raising them, we would feel dead. Christian, you must see that that is a sign of great idolatry. For your foundation and your identity and your purpose is not your children. It's the Lord. And many times, for many people claiming Christ... There's great compromise when it comes to our children because forbid anything would happen by which they would leave us or say they hate us or turn away. What about parents? Many people are driven by parental expectations. Even though some may commonly claim to believe in and love God, in the end they are utterly broken and miserable because their parents let them down or didn't love them like they wanted to be loved. And in doing so, they make their parents the God of their lives without realizing it. They end up so angry at God for their condition 
but miss that it's really idol worship that's tearing their life apart. Until they repent of their idolatry, Jesus will not be that person's Savior. Their parents will continue to be their failed saviors. Church, we have to expose our idols because we have to see that our idols are killing us. That God loves us when He gives us good commands like this. They cannot give you salvation even though you believe they will. Nor joy or hope. They cannot be what only Christ will be to you. So you must expose them. A way to begin this road for yourself is to take some honest inventory. And I would encourage you to invite in faithful brothers and sisters to be with you on this journey. To help you see what often on your own you just do not see. Don't make big decisions or invite other people in to help you test the waters. Am I abiding in Christ? Am I slowing down in humility to keep the Lord my priority? We can be right in our own eyes in many of these things. Let us value this. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of being invited in to help essential moments where idol exposing is happening or in moments where exposing or being exposed by a failed idol is happening. I'm often, as a pastor, sitting in those settings. Don't miss that point. Idol exposure is going to happen. It is going to happen. Either you are going to expose it, or it's going to expose you. And when an idol exposes you, you will feel like the bottom is falling out. This is why I continue to encourage the church not to use words like, I'm devastated, or I'm undone. That's the language of someone who is not fixed in and grounded on the rock. When an idol doesn't deliver like we thought it would, every time, I mean every time, that person is going to say, I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. And it's so tragic to hear someone you love just be utterly broken over the failure of an idol in their life and in this, we're like the one who's described in Proverbs 5, 12 through 14, who says, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin. Church, we must expose our idols, because if we don't, they will expose us. Finally, what is the remedy for our idolatry? And the first fundamental thing you must see and understand is this. You don't just rid yourself of idols. Thomas Chalmers said it famously, said it well. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty or joy. The heart's desire for one particular object cannot be conquered but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You are made by God to worship. So you can't just clear the altar of things to worship. Your design will be to find something else to put on it. Therefore, the idols of our heart cannot just be rid of, they must be replaced. Right? Replaced with what? You might ask. 
the only thing that can ultimately satisfy and bring joy and life and identity and security and purpose, despite what you face in this life. His name is Jesus Christ. As Chalmers says, the only expulsive power of a bigger and better affection can eliminate the failed idols of the heart. The idols that are truly wicked are replaced with the Savior's love, a love that is truly perfect. The idols that are truly, that are truly good gifts of God that we've overinflated in our lives are then learned in Christ to be loved rightly. We get rid of the wicked things, replace them with Christ, and we're reoriented to love, love rightly the good things. The key to the good things that we've made idols is not to love them less, but to love Christ more. It is to love them rightly in light of the gospel. So what is that for you? That you love a lot, good things that you love, but learning to love them rightly is the key. If you know me, you know I deeply love my wife. Right? She is truly my favorite person in the world. But to be sure, she is not my joy or my hope or my identity. I need not love her less, but I need to love her rightly in the power of Christ. Because of God's love, His selfish love at work in me, I will then love her with His selfless love and no longer with my selfish love. And you can apply that to whatever those good things are that you might have a deep hold on. So much so that you would get to a place where you can pray regularly, Lord, if it be your will that today is my last day with this person or, or with this ministry or this career or this item, that I'm grounded in you, that I'm holding it rightly, that I'm constantly giving it back to the Lord because I'm fixed on Him, because my identity and my hope and my security and my joy is in Him. If your children are your idol, He's not calling you to love them less. He's calling you to love them rightly. The only way you can do that is to be satisfied in the one thing that can truly satisfy. To be saved by the one thing that can truly save you. To be secured by the only person who can truly keep you secure. To be purposed by the only one who can give you eternal purpose. That is Jesus. Hear this important warning, though. We need to be careful not to make God a mere idol. Because it is possible to do this. How so? It is possible to think of God, to use God to get to what the heart really wants. Maybe security, maybe comfort, maybe meaning, maybe joy, maybe community. If that's the case, you are still an idolater. Because God is not the ultimate prize of your life. We must not use God to get to His stuff. We must enjoy and worship Him because of who He is. The ultimate prize is to know God and be truly satisfied in Him. When we get this, we begin to really understand the gospel and the power of Christ to work in and through us. And church, it begins to change everything. Like we hear testimony of Paul doing this in our passage, we too then are emboldened to risk our lives to share the gospel and to see society truly changed. We're willing to risk relationships that people might abandon us, they might turn on us, but we love them enough 
to do the discerning and exposing of idols, the presentation of the gospel, to call them to truth. Paul's passionate. Did you hear in the passage? He wants to go. It took many layers of his community to keep him from storm, storming that crowd. We, under, we have to understand, though, when people's idols are identified and exposed, it's dangerous. You must not be ignorant to that. On one hand, idols are powerless as they're created and lifted up to an ultimate place in our hearts. But on the other hand, idols wield unbelievable power of influence to swing people here and there and everywhere. Notice how Paul here is willing to risk his life to defeat the false worship of idols and replace it with the life-giving gospel. Why? Because he is convinced that there's nothing greater than the gospel of Jesus. He's seeing it transform the world. Please see with me today, church, Jesus had the same commitment. He put his life in the hands of an angry crowd who was resolved to have him killed, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And they did. But in doing so, in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2.15. Amen? When the power and the principalities unleashed their fury and darkness upon Jesus, the cross, when he was wearing the weight of all our sin, he bowed his head into it and he died for us. And in doing so, he conquers it. He triumphs over it. He defeated the idols and the wickedness that fuels their worship and ours. Understand, church, Jesus is the only one who can do this in your life today. You cannot afford to stay ignorant to your idols. We must discern them. Pray for the Holy Spirit's help and the Word to help us do that. Body of Christ, we must expose them. Truly expose them, not play light. And then fundamentally replace them. That Jesus is the one on the altar so that I don't have any more affection for what is wicked and I have a rightly placed affection for what is good. Amen? May you repent of your sinful idolatry where it exists and trust your whole life fully to Jesus. Jesus alone is the expulsive power that replaces the failed affections of our, of our idolatry. I pray that you truly know him and that he forever frees you from your idol worship for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time and your word. I thank you for Paul's boldness, his willingness to risk it all. I thank you for your sovereign perfection to give us this account a unique account, the testimony of a guy who's clearly lost and valuing the things of the world, and yet it, it shows us what idle discerning and exposing looks like. We thank you for the expulsive power that Christ is alone, to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to truly and fully be all that we have longed for and need, that we would be accountable to each other and to your word, to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would be so mindful that we're not getting caught up in something that is becoming all-consuming, 
that our hope, our identity, our significance, our purpose, our security is grounded in God, our Creator alone, and not in anything else. We love you. We worship you and we cry out, only Jesus can be this to us. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship and life and devotion. Hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray.